1: That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands.
0: Hey there joystick-wagglers, can you believe it, we're racing towards the end of Series 2 of Games Master. It's been a fun time on the Games Rig, but it's almost time to head into the Games Master Academy and hang out with Dexter Fletcher for a series. But we can't round off Series 2 without hearing from you fine folks, so get in touch with your feedback for Series 2 of Games Master by emailing feedback at underconsultation.com with either an mp3 or written word, and it will be featured on the show, which will go out at the end of October. Let us know your favourite episodes, challenges, celebrities, features, and all your least favourite moments in between. Send your message to feedback at underconsultation.com or find us on social media at underconsolepod on Twitter or at under.console on Instagram. Enjoy the episode! Welcome to the Games Rig, this is Under Consultation, an episode-by-episode podcast guide through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master, I am one of your hosts Luke Owen, a
3: bleepy-bloopy supermarket type of podcast host and beginning to be embraced by the warm inviting thighs of Madame Spring, I am Ash Versus. This episode aired on the
0: 18th of March 1993, there's no change at the top of the charts as 2 Unlimited's No Limit is still number one for one more week, but we have a new film at the top of the box office, it's Pacino in Sense of a Woman. Hoo-ah,
4: hoo-ah.
5: Hi, Mr. Rossi. I here about the weekend job.
1: Come on in. They
5: put him in a veteran's home, but he hated it. Colonel's a gentleman. A real hero. This is some guy.
1: Down deep. The man is a lump of sugar.
2: Get in here, you idiot. What do you want?
3: You mean what I want?
2: What do you want here?
4: I want... I want a job. A job?
1: I promise you an easy 300 bucks.
2: I don't get an easy feeling. How's your skin, son? I like my aids to be presentable. Well, I, I've had a few
5: zits. Um, but my roommate, he let me his clinic because he's from Chestnut Hill
2: and he's got this. The History of My Skin by Charles Sims. Get out my dress blues. They're in a garment bag in the closet. Are, are we going someplace, Curtis? What business is that of yours? Don't shrug, imbecile. I'm blind.
3: I'll be honest, I'm more familiar with the Al Pacino character from Stellar Street than I am with actual mm. Al Pacino. I don't know what it was about Stella Street, but I fell in love with that show. And so when I think of Pacino, I think of his portrayal in Stellar Street and his interactions with the... Dustin Hoffman and the Michael Caine and particularly the Joe Pesci. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But this film is a 1992 American remake. It's a remake of Dino Risi's 1974 Italian film, Profumo di Donna, which is also an adaptation of an Italian book called Darkness and Honey by Giovanni Appino. And it stars Al Pacino, Chris O'Donnell, early role for Chris O'Donnell there. This is before he became Robin. I was going to say future Robin. And also it's got the Hoffman, the Philip Seymour Hoffman and Gabrielle yes but
0: as we said earlier this is most known for the are al pacino like and controversially i am more of a fan of that era of pacino than i am like proper pacino like i know that people you know are one of the the this generation's greatest actors i prefer him when he's crazy pacino i love him in devil's advocate i love him here
3: but despite him being the are pacino here he did do the legwork on this role he tried to understand what it felt like to be blind he met with clients of new york's associated blind he tried to understand what it was like for people who lost their sight as a result of trauma and so he did due diligence on the research which in 1992 to 1993 terms is definitely appreciated nowadays people would very very correctly ask why is a sighted person playing this role Mm mm-hmm and it's a valid question. He did win the Academy Award for Best Actor for his performance in the film, was also nominated for Best Director, Best Picture and Best Screenplay based on material previously produced or published. That's a very specific award. That's the one that gets shown in the montage. We never actually see that one being awarded. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the film won three major awards at the Golden Globes as well. Best Screenplay, Best Actor and Best Motion Picture Category Drama. Who are? Who are?
0: We've got a couple of releases to go through for this week. Uh, In Japan on the Game Boy, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes gets its release, Kirby's Adventure on the NES, and a game that you've had a bit of a run in during Series 2 of Games Master, Splatterhouse 3 on the Mega Drive gets its release in the US, then does not get ported over uh, into the European territories.
3: Yeah, who'd have known that you just pause the game and you see the map? God, that was a (laughs) painful stream. The problem with playing games unseen is sometimes not all the controls are intuitive and when you're doing a live stream you generally speaking don't pause the game because you're trying to interact with people i spent most of the stream wandering around the house trying not to double back on myself trying to find rooms i hadn't yet explored all that time i could have just paused the goddamn game and gone (laughs) oh i go
0: north that's exactly it yeah But Ash, why don't you tell us what's happening up in the magazines?
3: Well, we are still with issue three of Games Master. This is the magazine that will see us through these last two issues. And while Dominic's big purple column still looms over us, this week we're taking a look at a feature on a man that is allegedly about to destroy Sega and Nintendo. That man is Trip Hawkins. Trip Hawkins is a
0: fascinating character from this period of gaming history.
3: Now, I think we've firmly established that I still want a 3DO. Yes. And the crazy thing is, it would actually be really easy for me to get a 3DO. But for some reason I don't, possibly because I covet it so much, I worry that I will get it and I just... <laughs> it won't live up. It won't be as enjoyable. It, it won't be what I want it to be. And sadly, it wasn't what Trip wanted it to be. He wasn't trying to be Sega. He wasn't trying to be Nintendo. He wasn't trying to be Sony in what they would become in a few years. And he certainly wasn't trying to be what Microsoft were when they entered the gaming market. He was trying to be a JVC or Sony, but not from the video game market, he was trying to create a standard, a format. He wanted 3DO not to be a games console, not to be a video player, not to be any one thing. He wanted it to be a master of all. He wanted it to be your home entertainment for music, for games, for movies. And I think at this point in time, in 1992, 1993, he was doomed to failure. Mm-hmm. For the very simple reason that creating a platform for games Games, Okay, that's feasible. I can see that working. A platform for playing music. CDs are everywhere. They're even penetrating the gaming market. Fine. Movies and video. There's the issue. Because whatever they did for it couldn't be built in because the standards were not agreed upon. Video CD was kind of out there, but also kind of not. And it wasn't until DVD that we actually got a movie standard that kind of worked. Yeah, totally. Even when we went to high definition, we still managed to cock that up. We had HD DVD and Blu-ray and HD DVD died a death.
0: Universal were really the only studio that signed on for the HD DVD format because, I mean, Sony <coughs> everything over, really. like They, they just they, they completely f***ed <coughs> the entire system because they have been desperate to have their own format since the 80s. Didn't work with B2 Max. it didn't work with mini discs. They've been desperate and desperate and desperate. And really, the way that they won this time is because they've got the best best cameras they've got all of the best equipment so they just told the studios well if you choose HD DVD over blu-ray we won't supply any of your studio films with any of our equipment so all the studios signed on to blu-ray and sony finally won a war
3: it's kind of a dick move because i'll be honest i preferred the cases for HD DVD. they were a classy dark red they looked sexy yeah. whereas blu-ray they're blue plastic That's it, really. Picture quality-wise, there wasn't and isn't much in it. Not to my eyes, at least. But at this point, Trip Hawkins was marketing 3DO not as an item of hardware, but as licensable technology. He was licensing it out to people. There were machines that were going to be branded with Panasonic. There were machines that are going to be branded with ATT. So there you are. You've got a mobile cable telephone provider immediately jumping on board. The initial prices were going to be a somewhat eye-watering $799, although they were expected to fall rapidly below the $500 mark. It was a 32-bit risk-based system. It had customs graphics and sound chips. It's 50 times more powerful Than most machines on the market today, it was the first mainstream 32 bit platform. And it got interest from the big studios. Warner Brothers, Universal, and Paramount were looking to enter the games market via this platform and produce content that tied into movies they were releasing at the time, that included footage shot with the actors from those films. And Hawkins played up on that. He said this was going to be part of the new Hollywood. Unfortunately, this was just a buzzword, because realistically, no one was quite sure what it meant other than possibly interactive movies. And interactive movies already existed. He was trying to coin a phrase for something that was already there. But on the game side of things, you had Electronics Arts, Virgin, Ocean and Psygnosis, they all signed up to develop for the 3DO platform and things were lined up looking kind of good. Not sure they were quite on board for what Hawkins was calling the biggest step forward in consumer electronics in recent times, but a lot of people had financial interest in making the 3DO work. They wanted that all in one machine under the telly. And the fact that you could have ended up with a Panasonic 3DO or a Gold Star 3DO, or God forbid, if it had taken off in Europe, we'd have had an Amstrad 3DO. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a good thing that this didn't take <laughs> off. I, f-
0: I find Trip Hawkins to be one of the most interesting characters. Like, if you've read Blake J. Harris's book, Console Wars, it... it like- Trip kind of plays this very interesting role in sort of the early doors part of this. You know, I mean, he plays a sort of a role within the 3DO era as well, but kind of in that war between Nintendo and Sega, because when he was working with Electronic Arts and, you know, working with Electronic Arts at this point as well, he was sick of the monopoly that Sega and Nintendo held over the games market, particularly around the fact that both Nintendo and Sega limited companies to only releasing a certain number of games per year. Whereas Trip Hawkins was like, well, no, I want to release as many as I want. And Nintendo were, you know, you, you've got to be officially licensed by us. you got to buy the cartridges from us in order to get make your games. You can only release a certain amount of games per year. You can only release a certain amount of these cartridges per year as well. And so Trip was one of those people that started to reverse engineer them and started to reverse engineer the NES library. And they also tried to uh, reverse engineer the Mega Drive to the point where they did. They successfully did it and they held Sega over a barrel being like, look, we know how you make your games now. We know how to make the cartridges. We don't need to buy the cartridges from you anymore. We can just make our own ones. But rather than kind of shut them out like Nintendo did, Tom Kalinske of Sega went into business with them and they like, cool, if you want to do this, we'll set up a new deal. And that's why Electronic
3: Arts cartridges for the Mega Drive look different to every other Mega Drive carts. But once again, this article at the end reiterates that unlike other CD formats, 3D and its big brothers are not going for the sort of propeller heads who take tomorrow's world. Hey, I resemble that remark. (laughs) But regardless, they're not trying to edge out Nintendo or Sega as the number one choice for games. They're looking to make the same sort of impact in the 90s as a video made in the 70s and 80s. Some important people think that they might just do it. And the last word on this in this article goes to Jim Douglas in a word from the editor. And I'm kind of on board with this statement then and now. So is this machine going to take over the world or what? Well, the obvious answer is, I don't know. Still, that's probably not what you want to hear. The root of most problems with standalone CD technology, distinct from Sega and Nintendo systems, is that no one can agree on a standard, so no single machine emerges as a market leader. Until that happens, no one is going to invest heavily in software in case they pick the wrong machine. Anyway, the smartness of the deal allowing anyone to make the machine, instantly empowers 3DO with all the marketing and financial muscle of every manufacturing company, so there's no jostling for market position. Although there's no firm European launch date, I'd be amazed if the 3DO wasn't available in some form by this time next year, but for me the most exciting development is the movie industry's involvement and the fact that finally the interactive movie may be a realistic prospect. And he's right, and it is actually kind of painful to look back and see that this failed, because the concept of creating a gaming standard for consoles, it would have changed how gaming works. Now we've had other people produce consoles under licence, usually to get around trade restrictions or political issues. JVC made the Saturn, there are various special editions of the Dreamcast, different people had the licence to produce Nintendos for different areas. But this would have been a standard that could have been built into other things, things you could have had combination systems you could have had things that combined the 3do with the laser disc player with the vcr you could have had something like what pioneer did with one of their laser disc players where they did add-on packs so you actually had the mega ld pack that allowed you to play sega cd and genesis or mega drive cartridges on your laser disc player they also did a similar one for the pc engine that allowed you to play turbo graphics pc engine cd-rom games on your laser player and it was basically just an add-on module but pioneer would have probably just jumped into this they'd have gone boom Mm. let's get a 3do in there and then you could in theory have one machine that could play sega 3do PC Engine, and laser discs. The
0: other thing for this as well is that had the 3DO worked and had the 3DO taken off, I'll be honest, I think the price was probably the 3DO's biggest downfall. I think launching at 700 bucks was always going to be a struggle. I think even then being lowered down to 500, it didn't really make much of a difference considering how cheap you could pick up a Super Nintendo or a Mega Drive comparatively. There is that possibility of like that what if world, had the 3DO worked, would Electronic Arts have gone exclusive with the 3DO? And you think about how those games, the Electronic Arts, well, they're not for me particularly. I'm not a fan of, of the FIFA. I mean, I was a fan of the FIFA games when, you know, in the sort of early 90s, but I sort of fell out of them over the years. But they are still a big thing now, and they were a big thing then as well. If they'd have gone exclusive to a certain platform, would that have meant that a lot of people would have given up on the Mega Drive and the snares and just jumped straight into the 3DO to get their FIFA
3: fix? FIFA for Europe, maybe, but for America, if the NHL, mm-hmm. John Madden, the Maddens, don't forget mm-hmm. it's the Maddens, <laughs> if they'd gone 3DO exclusive, that would have sold systems. Your Road oh, Rash wouldn't, have done. but the sports no. games, that's where it would have been. I'd argue that's one of the reasons why we've not had EA take a sports game platform specific because they just want to make the most money out of it as possible Mm -hmm. they don't want to risk losing sales to someone that can't afford to make the jump absolutely yeah like ea is all about that
0: bottom dollar in the end that's why we haven't had a, a new simpsons game from them because tapped out makes more money for them per month than any simpsons game they release would ever make them
3: if the 3do had started at $300. I think it might have just made it over the games market that was already heavily saturated because Nintendo and Sega were heavily entrenched and 3DO came out of nowhere and didn't have an identity. Mm. If Atari had been used to brand the 3DO, maybe the legacy name might have been enough to give it a boost up. It didn't quite work for the Jaguar though. No, but that's because the Jaguar was... was (laughs) Yeah, fair.
4: Oh, you're too kind. You're lovely. You're a bit exuberant, you are. Okay, The icy, probing hands of Mr Winter are beginning to be replaced by the warm, inviting thighs of Madam Spring. And out here on Europe's only video games resort, our holidaying millions are enjoying a slightly warmer front than usual. Thanks mainly to the man who warms anyone's cockles given half a chance the Games Master.
0: Ash, it's the penultimate episode of Games Master Series 2. The icy probing hands of Mr. Winter are gone and we're now in the warm thighs of Madam Spring um, and it's going to be slightly warmer than usual as we head into this finale.
3: I like how they clearly did record some of these intros with when they were being broadcast in mind. It makes it feel a lot more current even though we obviously now know that this was all filmed six, seven months ago as we were entering winter. I like this intro. I also have a slight note of melancholy and i will when we talk about the final episode as well because not every episode has been spectacular our ratings have gone up and down over the various episodes but it has been amazing to see this show grow over season Mm -hmm. two as it truly cements its identity Whilst I am excited to look at the Dexter Fletcher year with fresh eyes, I do wonder what a season three with Dominic Diamond would have been like. Would it have leapt straight to the season four levels, or would we have seen further growth and evolution and development of the Persona on screen and the the trappings of the Games Master universe? So yeah, it's a little bittersweet.
0: Yeah, what I would say for this intro though is that, and we kind of talked about this last week as well, is that it's nice to see a new intro, because we did have sort of a run of like four or five weeks where they were reusing old intros. And I did have a bit of a worry that we weren't going to get a new one until the end of the series. But actually getting these ones, and as you say, that are timely, talking about as we're moving into spring, does make it feel nice. It makes it feel rather current. And I, and I really
5: appreciate that.
3: But with two episodes left to go, we've no time to dawdle. Let's go over to Gamesmaster and find out what that first challenge is. Hello.
5: You must forgive me if I appear a little um this evening. My hemorrhoids are playing up something rotten on these dank steel structures. Oh well, enough gambling. We commence the evening proceedings with a noble challenge on Act Razor. As a chivalrous knight, you will need to battle your way through the first level of the game and defeat the centre in under one and a half minutes. Unsheath your sword.
0: And he's having a heck of a time at the moment. Not only has he got
3: seagulls that he's trying to gun down, he's now got bloody hemorrhoids. Now we talked last week about the anatomy of Games Master, specifically. The discussion point was wanking him off Mm -hmm. and we didn't really reach a conclusion other than him getting the horn may actually be a physical horn, which we often hear. Where does he ha- how? Hemorrhoids? What? Well, I mean, they feed him. We know this much so uh, the food's got to go somewhere ash yeah but that's that's some major sea pollution luke i mean there's no way that they're capturing that in a waste tank not at his size he's a big lad oh but i feel very sorry for the lad that has to swim to this place that we
0: find out at the end of this episode
3: oh god yeah <laughs> those floaters could sink the titanic
0: anyway we're playing axe razor uh, get through the first <laughs> level and beat the boss time to unsheathe the sword
3: Yeah, Actraiser. They had two games in this series on the SNES. Uh, This one came out in 1990 originally. It was a combination of side-scrolling platform with some God Game sections, which uh, thankfully we don't actually see in this because that would not gripping television make. Unsurprisingly... Going by the sort of imagery you see, this is actually quite a religious game. There's a lot about Christian monotheism in there. And in fact, it was actually toned down a little when it came to Europe because much in the way a lot of games in Japan just go at things all guns blazing, this one did exactly that. To the point where in the original Japanese game, the protagonist was actually called God. Mm. And for mysterious reasons, in America and therefore in Europe, that didn't quite fly yeah unsurprising that one so instead of god they went for the slightly more bdsm-centric title of the master or doctor who either way <laughs> yeah it's a lad with a chopper out a sword of holy divinity i will say that i think the music for this game kind of
0: separates it out from the pack and what i mean by that is to look at the game the game doesn't look like a snes game the game looks like an amiga game but the soundtrack makes it feel like a SNES game. That makes it sound like... You can tell that this game belongs on the Super Nintendo because of that score and the and the functionality that the SNES has to make that score a reality. And that is, I, I think, its biggest selling point. Because apart from that, the game doesn't look anything special. But that soundtrack is is pretty special.
3: It's something nice. I would argue if you're not interested in playing the game, hop on YouTube, check out the score... You'll still probably enjoy it.
4: And whiling away the seconds on this hack and slash is Jamie Spencer from Finchley. <laughs> right now, Jimmy, how long have you been playing video games for? Uh, well, some time now. Some time yeah. now, okay, we don't have to get specific. It's yeah. only time, Jimmy, is it? Yeah. Inconsequential. Yeah. Okay. What do you like at platform games? Quite good. Quite I'm good, uh, two. What ones have you completed? Uh, Robocod and Go all right, now is it true at the tender age of thirteen you did social anthropology at Oxford University? No. Or must be the next guy.
0: Well, hoping to enjoy this game, it's Jamie Spencer from Finchley and his wicked nineties curtains. And he's very good at platform games, Ash, because not only is he beaten Robocod, he's also beaten Golden Axe. Which is not a platform game.
3: No, it's not. This kid does not give Dominic much to work with because Dominic asks him how long he's been playing games for and he says, oh, some time. And Dominic just goes, well, yeah, time is inconsequential, isn't it? (laughs) And then throws him another softball with asking if it's true that at the tender age of 13, he studied social anthropology at Oxford. No, says Jamie. Must be the next guy. Responds to me. must Dominic. be one of the next <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: you
3: know, Some of these kids really don't give him much to work with. I mean, I know oh, we've yeah. already gone over so many times how they're not used to being on camera, but come on, man. He was setting <laughs> you up to be the next Doogie Howser. But he doesn't know that Golden Axe isn't a platformer. So really, what hope do we have?
4: And tonight's man with all the answers is Keith Bullen from the Nintendo Hotline. Welcome, Keith. Hello, thanks. Okay, now I've got a feeling Jimmy's in with a shout here. Can you give him any tips to help him on his way? Um, obviously here at speed, he's just gonna try and avoid everything he can and go for it. Right, rather than speed. rather than taking the time oh, to actually yes. slash them. just go for it. Okay, then. Well, Keith Pullen from the Nintendo hotline is in the
0: booth and suggests that you've got to speed through the level because you've only got 90 seconds to not just get through this level, but also beat the end of level Guardian, which is quite a tough little time frame.
3: And it's something that Jamie, as he starts off, definitely heeds that advice because he doesn't stop. He just runs, including running through multiple enemies. It's not even doing that damage boost. He's just running through them and he only stops to kill enemies when he absolutely needs to. But he does hit the health pots. He does manage to restore some of his health and keep going. Yeah, that's what I would say about him because he does
0: take a lot of hits early doors, but he's taking those hits because he knows he can, because he knows that there are some health points later on that he can reclaim back. It's smart play, really. It's knowing the the layout of the level and using that to your advantage.
3: And the first time he really deliberately truly really decides to attack an enemy is when he has to because he has to defeat a tree monster to cause the tree monster to basically get an erection. Yes. That's that's what happens. He punches the tree in the face. The tree literally gets wood which he climbs up and over and uses to continue with the level. And it's not the last we'll see of him riding trees because lo and behold he clambers aboard one like it's an ent in Lord of the Rings and uses it to gain over hostile territory. Even the f***ing trees walked in those movies. And he makes it to the boss with 30 seconds left on the clock this is gonna be tight this is tight and i'll be honest i think he'd have made this challenge if not for one misfortune that i don't even think was his fault it was the game glitching a little bit wherein he ended up behind the boss and you cannot hit this boss from behind.
0: I also don't think it's certainly helped that when he first ducked down to attack, he was just slightly out of position. He was like a couple of pixels off being in the right place to attack, but not get hit. And so, because he was a couple of pixels out, his first bunch of swings completely miss and completely whiff.
3: But he does start to make some progress. The health does start to go down. 18 seconds left before we get the first lightning attack. But While he's avoiding that lightning, that's when he glitches through the boss. And none of the swings he makes at that point land at all. He finally gets back on the right side of the boss, but the time runs out and the boss still has a fifth of its energy left. While this guy was death on the microphone at the beginning, I felt bad for him here because it glitched through. I, yeah, he should have succeeded, even though he was slightly mispositioned at the beginning. If he hadn't glitched through the boss, I think he'd have just made it it'd been a one or two second finish
0: well that's what we've seen throughout series two and one of the reasons why i have very much enjoyed this series is that they have picked times that can just be done like if you get everything right you can do it within the times that they set and i think this is one of those challenges where you can do it in one minute 30 seconds i think that he showed that you can do it in one minute 30 seconds but just being slightly out of position and then the glitch means that you haven't got the time left to do it what he needed really was a boss that we get in like next week's episode like that shadow of the beast three boss that's the boss you needed when you've got a short uh, short space of time in order to beat him
3: i mean spoilers for next week that shadow of the beast three boss is barely a boss oh god it's barely there blinking you'll miss it you would have a harder time defeating a carnival balloon than that boss
4: (laughs) (laughs) bad luck jimmy no jimmy that was desperately close there Where did you lose those vital seconds?
2: Uh, When he must have turned around, that lost me about six.
4: When he he beat the jump at the end there? Yeah. Oh, well, never mind. At least it was a very exciting challenge for us to watch.
0: Anyway, he is absolutely gutted that he's lost this. He even throws back his head when he realises that his time has run out of just a, damn, damn, I came close.
3: And he knows exactly where he lost it. And he says when Dom asks him in the post-match, he's like, when I ended up on the wrong side of the boss, I lost five or six seconds that five or six seconds would have made the difference.
4: This week we grab our furry dice, firmly grip the steering wheel and look at racing games. First up, take to the water in Eliminator Boat Jewel, 25 courses, two playing styles and the chance to add all manner of enhancements to your craft. The graphics are a little bland in some places and the sound's a bit lippy-bloppy, kind of supermarket stuff. For an NES game it's great fun, you can almost imagine your James Bond indulging in a high speed boat chase. It is a good game, definitely. But its long-term appeal is possibly doubtful.
0: Hey, it's racing games in the review zones this week. We've got John Beveridge returning along with Cooge Holmes from Megatech and Radian Automatic from NMS. I feel like
3: we haven't had enough Radian on this series. I was overjoyed to see Radian back, and also Radian seems much more confident here than when we last saw them. An interesting selection of games that we've got, though, because the first one is a NES game called Eliminator Bochel. Now, this game's already been out a couple of years, but they're still taking a look at it. John is not too keen on it. He says the graphics are a little bit bland. And the sound is a bit blippy bloppy supermarket stuff. Cooch says, It's great fun, and you can almost imagine your James Bond indulging in a high speed boat chase. So I'm imagining he means Live and Let Die rather than one of the crappier Bond films. Mm -hmm. And Radion says, It's a good game, but its long term appeal is possibly doubtful. Still scores a very respectable 80%. Not bad for a NES game at this time in its life. Yeah, I felt like
0: Cooch was taking a bit of a dig. At Eliminator Boat Jewel, because what he says is, it's good fun for a NES game. I was like, oh, Kuj Holmes from Megatech taking a little dig there at the NES system. What I will say though, like, I've, I've never heard of this game before or seen it, but it looks pretty sweet for an NES game. Like, the top down stuff is, you know, fairly standard, but some of the more like 3D aspects of it look really nice. It's a game that
3: played to its strengths, and it definitely decided to prioritize graphics and gameplay over sound, because essentially it is bleepy bloopy supermarket hmm. stuff, but it looks like a solid fun game it reminds me a lot of Micro Machines the boat levels when you can actually race around the bathtub and stuff so I like the look of this game I may go and boot it up on my NES classic later because I'm sure it's on there amongst all the other ROMs that are of course entirely legally obtained (laughs) but up next Luke oh absolute stone-cold classic
4: next up the Mega Drive conversion of this stunning NES game Micro Machines 27 tracks of gosh isn't my vehicle small action like a lot of Mega Drive games, it's a bit easy and um, in one player I wouldn't expect it to last more than a couple of days. If you've got a mate for most of the time then it's a worthwhile purchase. I'm convinced it's a major contribution to the amount of fun you can have with your Mega Drive.
0: Yeah, it's the Mega Drive version of the NES game which, fun fact for you Ash, I did not know I actually and I think I even said this in the Games Master issue one review that we did I think I even said the NES game was a conversion of the Mega Drive one because I was just always under the impression that the Mega Drive game came first and was then ported to other systems. Mate, I hate to break it to you, but you know Sega didn't invent the wheel. No, no, I know they didn't. <laughs> I did I have this thing in my head. I my memory of this game is that it was like a Mega Drive game first and was then ported to other systems. Like my memory is completely wrong on this one.
3: But that's the way that I definitely remember it being. I mean, it made its way to many systems. It started on the NES, it got ports for the Mega Drive, the Game Gear, the Master System, the Game Boy, the Super Nintendo, the CDi, and the PC. Yes. I did just say the CDI, <laughs> which instantly makes it a better game than any of those god awful licensed Zelda games. Ooh, oh, yeah. Those things are the darkest timeline.
4: Join me Link, and I will make your face the greatest in Korodai, or else you will die. No, not into the pit, it burns!
2: Why'd you do that? I just saved you from Ganon! you did not.
0: I love Micro Machines. I think Micro Machines is a really, really fun game. It only got better as each game came out as well. Like I think like 95 and 96 are are really great. But like these reviews, I don't think the reviews that these three give really reflect the score it gets at the end. You know, you're Radian saying that, yeah, it's good, but it's only going to last you a couple of days. John saying it's only good in two player and Cooge says, you know, it's it kind of convinces him that there are there is fun to be had with your Mega Drive. Those review comments don't reflect the 87% that it gets. And I'll be honest, I don't think it reflects how fun and creative and inventive Micro Machines was as a as a game.
3: Their reviews almost sound like they literally just got to play the game for the most part by themselves for a couple of hours because the true value of Micro Machines is in the multiplayer. You want the two-player or as we get with later iterations, the four-player fun. Yeah. This game is as important to multiplayer as Mario Kart or Goldeneye as we go down the timeline but it's only as good as the people you're playing it against. So if you've got some slightly bored game journalists who just want to go on the piss in Soho, because now we know where they filmed this, there's so many bars in that area where I would rather be in than in a studio, even as historic a studio as it was. Are they really gonna be interested in playing Micro Machines, probably on a test board and it crashes a bit? Uh, perhaps, yeah,
0: because I would argue that I prefer Micro Machines in one player than I did in two player. I don't like the two player mode on the Micro Machines games. Because I don't think you can get enough around the track unless you are like equally good at the game and you can get a really good loop round. Then it's okay. But as you said, if you're playing it against someone who's not quite as good and you're way better, it's so stop start. Like it's hard to get a flow for a two player game. It's because you're not playing a race. The way the two player works on Micro if you've never played it, is if you get off the screen and someone gets left behind, you get a point and you basically have like this uh, sliding scale, you have to get yours all the way down or all the way up in order to win the race. So you're not actually racing people. You're just sort of like playing against them competitively. I think the one player mode is way better on micro machines than the two player one.
3: I can see where you're coming from there. And to draw a parallel, I don't think has ever been used with micro machines before. It's like tennis. Tennis games are at their best when you've got a volley going, when you are neck and neck and it's going backwards and forwards. And it even reflects when we've seen tennis games on the challenges in Games Master. When it's one sided, it's dull. When the people have equal skill and the ball starts to fly back and forth, that's when it gets exciting. And with Micro Machines, you want people to be neck and neck. Otherwise, yeah, it stop start. It stops being fun. It starts getting tedious. Yeah, it's a f***ing great game though. Oh my god, it's absolutely such an amazing game. But what's not an amazing game and is an odd game to feature in this review because of how it becomes available is Dirty Racing on the Game Boy.
4: Finally, Bird's Eye View monochrome racing action with more tracks than you can shake a Game Boy at Dirty Racing. Everything about the game really just shrieks average. The graphics and the sound and the playability is just enjoyable, yeah, but very typical. The tracks are too thin, the cars are too wide. You don't really want to be caught playing this game, it's just complete cack
0: yeah this game looks very japanese going by some of the screenshots that they show because they've got kind of this sort of like anime lass with you know some sort of uh, bulging cleavage uh, appearing out uh, as you sort of put together your car and you know radian says it's totally average everything about it looks and sounds typical john says you don't want to
3: be caught dead playing this game it's complete cack 54 percent. it's funny you should say it looks japanese because it was developed for japan for jellico in fact it was only released as a standalone game in japan in the western world it came paired up with jeep jamboree off-road adventure which we had reviewed earlier this series and the pair of them became known as race days which came out in 1994 so to the best of my knowledge this game was not available standalone in the Western world. And if it was, I can't find any evidence of it existing. And I checked the usual sites, I checked Google, and also I checked eBay, because even if there isn't a website entry to do with the release of this game, someone will be selling it online. And I could only find Japanese copies of the game. And boxed in reasonably good condition, a Japanese copy of this game goes for over £275. Wow. That's a lot of money for a 54% game. (laughs) <laughs> That's a lot yeah, of money totally. for a 56% game, which is what I originally said and then edited out. <laughs> that definitely means then that they had this and Jeep Jamboree
0: on, in on imports, assuming that they would get Western releases, only to find out that a year later, they'll just be released as a double pack.
3: Entirely possible. They did make some interesting changes to the graphics when it got a Western release, because as you pointed out, it's an anime babe in this game. And they tried to Westernize it for the eventual Western release, which appeared to me by the screenshots I've seen to just be let's make it impressionist because it went from anime eyes to triangular eyes. It got weird. It was like someone traced over it but only using the straight line tool in Microsoft Paint.
4: At last it's time to announce the winners of our designer game competition using Amos on the Amiga. Any idea we had of awarding just one prize went straight out the window as we were bombarded with entries from all over the world. Europress software kindly gave us a mountain of extra prizes to dish out. 10 Special Runners-Up Awards of Easy Amos went to the best game design on paper. In reverse order, Angus Poland played on the Scottish Connection with Highland Wildcat. In 9th place, Alex Burdett and Gavin Bond had a very witty bout of nautical nuances. At 8, Nick Harmer, Alan Darling, Matt Gathercall got it for the Rather Noir Cyber Team. At number 7, John Kruksicki and Matthew Honeywell had a platform rom to be in Farm Island. Earning 6th place with some daunting draftmanship was Kira McDonald and Suicide Sucks. At five, one of our younger entrants, Matt Roberts, with a finely detailed What's Up doc. In four, we get surreal with Sheriff Handbag from Richard Leach. And at three, the youngest runner-up, 12-year-old David Slade with Bionic Baby. Second best design on paper went to Peter Bolshaw for the atmospheric Dungeon of Prisoners. But for sheer volume of tree-destroying paper, Lee and Paul Duval impressed us the most with the nature platform game Woody.
0: Well, it's a lovely little feature to wrap up something that's been sort of like a a series-long storyline. It's the AMOS winners. We kind of had this first announced back in episode six, and then about halfway through the series, we had sort of like an update of, you know, hey, still send in your applications for this. And now we found out our winners. And Dominic tells us that they had so many good entries that they couldn't just
3: have one winner. There were now multiple tiers of winners. I like that they made this decision because clearly they got a lot of entries. I've got all the 10 runners-up written down. I don't know if any of these eventually did get turned into games or ever went any further, but I will say the quality of some of the artwork on some of these is astounding. Oh, man. Angus Poland's Highland Wildcat looks wicked. Looks really cool. And then following that at number nine, you've got Alex Berdodet and Gavin Bond Went for some nautical naughty antics with Battle of the Beaches, the artistic style of which really reminded me of Viz and that kind of like naughty British seaside postcard art. That's exactly what it is. And at number eight, we went full on 2000 AD. You had Nick Harmer, Alan Darling and Matt Gathercole, who did a noirish cyber team. The artwork on that one looked Banging. Yeah, it looked like a proper 80s B-movie. Slightly more cartoonist John Kulczycki and Matthew Honeybell came in at number seven with a platform romp called... Farm Island. Yeah, nothing too much to say about that one, but I did also like the art style for Kieran McDonald's Suicide Sucks,
0: which had sort of like very Japanese inspired. Like it looked like Mega Man stuff. It looked like Mega Man artwork.
3: The art style on number six looked ahead of its time. Like that's the sort of stuff that I see on Twitter and Instagram and Deviantart. It was beautiful, clean, bold lines. That one I might do a bit more digging on and maybe bring it up in the season two wrap up and see if I can find anything because I want to know what happened to that person because that was some good art. At number five, we got one of the younger entries with Matthew Roberts and a finely detailed game called What's Up Doc? Probably didn't get picked because that was already both a Barbara Streisand film, a catchphrase of Bugs Bunny and an ITV Saturday morning entertainment show. But this might be my favourite bit of uh, design work, which
0: was Richard Leet's Sheriff Handbag. (laughs) Like, if you've not seen this episode yet and you're wondering what the heck is Sheriff Handbag, it is quite literally a handbag with this grumpy face on it this like anthropomorphic
3: handbag that says Sheriff. I thought it was really, really creative. I loved that because that is also a proper design for an indie game in the 90s. That's the Amiga's forte weirdness like that. Mm-hmm. But at number three, we've got the youngest runner up, David Slade with Bionic Baby. Lovely, bright, colourful drawings there. Glad to see a young kid placing so high. Peter Balshaw uh, submitted Dungeon of
0: Prisoners, and I've written in brackets on my notes here, I bet he plays D&D and Spectrum games.
3: Well, he also knows his way around a computer because this is the only entry that, while provided on paper, uses a computer art package to map out the levels. I appreciated seeing that. That I hope that guy went far. Which was then it was surprising because Lee and Paul Deval are the sort of
0: winners of this with their game submission, Woody. But as far as I could tell, it was just really detailed drawings of insects and amphibious creatures.
3: I thought that, but then looking at the montage where they show the piles of paper, it looks like they'd also done map tiles and everything and plotted out the levels and they'd actually they had actually designed not just a concept for a game but an entire game i suspect they may have won on actually providing a plan that could very easily be turned into a game but you know what 10 runners up while they were categorized from 10 down to one and we've just done them in a countdown styley like we're on radio one doing the top of the charts they all got the same prize anyway
4: now, on to the actual games. Two special commendations were awarded to. First of all, 20 year old Fraser Ashworth for Super Blue Kid. A very impressive RoboCod-style parallax scrolling extravaganza.
3: Onto the actual games that were produced, two special commendations were awarded. The first went to twenty-year-old Frasier Ashworth for Super Blue Kid, which it looks like RoboCod, it smells like RoboCod, and even if you look it up online today and you can find long plays of it on YouTube, guess what? They say it's like RoboCod as well.
0: Yeah, I was going to say they compare it to RoboCod in this segment here and over in here. That looks like it too.
3: But interesting to point out. As i just mentioned you can actually find this game and play it oh that's cool this one did get out there in some form or another and is out there and there's long plays on youtube not very long long plays because it's quite a short game but it's out there which is really really cool to see and also in the title screen for the version that's out there it doesn't have anything to do with games master that i saw but it does have bouncing text along the top that says hello EuroPress. <laughs> who were of course sponsoring this competition
4: also commended was Stellar Escape, a Xenon 2 type shoot 'em up sent all the way from Spain. Produced by Jose and Alberto Ruiz, Juan Anilo, and Francisco Just. The designers of both these games received copies of Amos Professional, the ultimate programming package. A
0: second runner up, I suppose you could call them, was Stellar Escape, which is like a Xenon 2 style shoot that was sent in from Spain.
3: Spain? <laughs> oh, sorry, not space. Never mind.
4: Space!
3: It was produced by Jose and Alberto Ruiz, Juan Anino and Francesco Luz. And this game is also out there and playable. And again, went out and I watched a long play of it, but I noticed something interesting on the long play of it that I saw, which is either via lack of experience or maybe they were just pushing the hardware too hard. But when you play this game, If you fire the gun, the sound effect of the gun causes the music melody to drop out because they've reached the limitations of the sound chip of the Amiga. So while the gun is going pew pew, the melody has to stop, which gives it a really (laughs) unpleasant stuttering. However, this game still looks pretty damn good. Both of these games look pretty good. And certainly comparable to a lot of Amiga games that were certainly out there, if not on sale, but at least on cover discs. Yeah, I thought this looked
0: really impressive. I also very much appreciated that on its menu screen, it's got a Games Master competition. And it's even got the Games Master logo really well rendered.
3: Which I was expecting maybe to see on Super Blue Kid, because that one along the top, it said Games Master when they showed it here. But the version that I then saw later, they dropped that and just decided to target the developers directly.
4: But the overall winner was Charlie Chimp, programmed by 22-year-olds Brian Bell and Ashley Cunningham in a transformed garden shed in Belfast, this one for sheer playability. The game will be on the cover of next month's Amiga format, as well as that, the winner gets £500 worth of Amiga hardware. Well done, everybody.
3: But the top dog, or the top chimp, it's Charlie Chimp, which I believe we discussed with Matthew from Botchamania way back on episode 6, because this game won this game got published. This game went out on the cover of Amiga Format. This game spawned six or seven sequels. This is one of these rare occasions where someone won a competition like this and by Jingo, it actually kind of paid off. Yeah, they say here that it definitely won for its playability. And as
0: you said, it's going to be on the front cover of Amiga Format, make get 500 quids worth of Amiga hardware. But like, I don't think it looks as good. Obviously, you know, it depends on the, as they said, the playability. But I don't think it looks as good or refined as Super Blue Kid or Stellar Escape. I'd say it
3: doesn't look as good or refined, but... It also doesn't look immediately like the games that it's aping, if you'll excuse the pun. Mm -hmm. Super Blue Kid is Robocod. It looks like Robocod. It smells like Robocod. It must be Robocod, which is also what Auntie Marisha is cooking for us later. With Stellar Escape, it's Zenon. It looks like Zenon. Without the banging soundtrack. Without the banging soundtrack. In fact, at times without almost any soundtrack at all. Whereas Charlie Chimp just looks like it came up with its own graphic elements, its own style, and put more effort into being a playable game than it did emulating another game style. But for whatever reasons, the dude's the winner and it worked for him because six games later, it's still talked about now and it's listed as one of those games that was developed and reached publishing via the Easy Amos developing system. I'm glad we got to see a finale to
0: this feature as well. I did have
3: like, you know, we've kind of said
0: in the wrap up of series one that we don't, we try not to look too far ahead unless we're like today where we're doing a double recording and we watch two episodes back to back so we can record them back to back. So I wasn't sure whether we were going to get a wrap up to this feature when it first was brought up back in episode six so i was really thrilled to to see this here and to see all the entries as well and to see so many entries for
3: it this could have Absolutely bombed for them, it could have received no entries whatsoever, and clearly it went the other direction. They got entries from all over the world of all varying levels of quality and levels of development, be it from just paper ideas through to fully functional games. What a great idea i 'm mm. glad it paid off. I was happy that we got to wrap up the series, seeing a bit of a payoff for this but it 's time for our celebrity challenge, so what are we playing games master
5: i 've decided to opt for the brute force of an arm-wrestling encounter on Arm Champs 2. I must admit it's all a bit macho for me, but I'm aware that everyone's tastes need to be catered for. Each contestant would have one attempt to record the highest possible strength reading against the computer. No room for the faint-hearted on this one, so I'm fret not about Wittgenstein's latest theorem, and give it your all.
0: Well, this challenge isn't just a bit too macho for Gamesmaster. I feel like it's a bit too macho for me. But, you know, as Gamesmaster said, we do have to cater for everyone. It's not for the faint of heart. We're playing Arm Champs
3: 2. Yep, it's a sequel. It's a very, very specific bit of hardware-based arcade machinery. You can emulate this, but obviously it ain't going to do any good because what you need is a big plastic and metal arm as part of the machine. It was released in 1992. It was a sequel to Arm Champs 1, and it pitted you as a muscle-bound ladies' man that was 10 taking on all sorts of various characters throughout the game, starting with Trixie, a Russian bodybuilder, and the only female competitor in the game. You then move up to Chang, and woof, that's a Chinese stereotype. I'm glad we didn't actually have to cover. Then we go to Atlas, who's kind of inspired by the Flash. And then we go on to the Turk, who basically looks like the Iron Sheik.
0: (laughs) Yeah, a little bit.
3: And then we go on and on. There's a sumo wrestler, there's a bodybuilder... There's someone from England called The Rock, but apparently not that Rock or any relation to Rocky Maivia or Rocky Johnson. And then the final opponent is a cyborg from the US called Spex, who is basically a roided-up
0: Robocop. Specs is an odd name for the character as well, because that sounds like that is what a nerdy kid in an 80s rom-com would have been called. Like a rom, like a, like a you know, like a, like a porkies. Like the nerdy kid in that would have been called Specs.
3: Especially the way it's spelt, because I believe it's spelled S-P-E-C-K-S, as opposed to spec like specialist or or specifications, S-P-E-C.
4: And we're very lucky tonight to have three of the world's premier arm wrestlers meeting head-to-head for this challenge. So please give a warm welcome to Rod Rambolinette, Robert Badnews-Brown, and Tony the Lunatic Dupre. Yeah. Um, all right, well right. Welcome, Tony. Okay, now I'd like to turn to you first of all, Rod. You're the world champion at left and right hands. You must be the favourite tonight.
2: Yeah, well, arm wrestling's done in weight classes, and um, there's a very big man standing next to me. <laughs> and uh, be quite honest. He's good, but I'm better.
4: OK, all right, let's turn on to Robert Bad News. Brian, will you be bad news for the other two tonight? Oh,
2: definitely, yeah. You be... I think I'll win this
4: tonight. All right. Now, let's go on to Tony. I think you're, um, you're our smallest equal challenger. Is size important in this thing?
5: No, not really size, but um, strength and technique is, and I'm here to prove that a smaller guy can technically beat Bigger guys like these.
3: They are three legitimate British arm wrestling legends. They are Rod Rambo Lynette, Robert Bad News Brown, not the wrestler Bad News Brown, a different Bad News Brown, and Tony the lunatic jury. This challenge isn't really for me because like I'm I do not find this sort
0: of thing impressive. But you know, like they are the sort of people that love this and they love being the dead toughest and the dead strongest at this sort of thing. And I want to be shown up by a machine here. And, you know, like in the end, it actually becomes quite a fun little challenge.
3: Now, I did my best to research all three of these guys. Bad News Brown, I couldn't really get anywhere with because of course you try and search for Bad News Brown, all you're going to get is the pro wrestler Bad News Brown. I did find a bit on Tony Drury. He'd been involved in arm wrestling since 1987. He was inspired slash introduced to the sport by a Sliced Alone movie over the top because when that movie came out, they did all sorts of competitions including in all the countries where the movie was released. The event was advertised in the Sun, he applied and was accepted he was in the lightest class and was the very first match called and then in front of over a thousand people he was beaten in about a tenth of a second. He didn't give up, he went back, he trained and since that point he's won five national championships at least and competed at the highest levels of arm wrestling throughout the world. All achieved as he stated in the interview I found without the use of steroids. Now as I said couldn't find anything on Bad News Brown but I could find stuff on Rod Rambo Lynette. And immediately, as soon as I started reading about this guy, I had empathy for him. And then, as I saw video, I just like this guy. So, to give you a bit of background, he started arm wrestling in 1986 while he was serving in the British Army, being initially trained by Clive Myers, who was another arm wrestling legend. He was a multiple time British, European, and world champion and was diagnosed with lipodystrophy, diabetes, and pancreatitis at the age of 25. Ouch. Which would have been when this challenge was being filmed. He was born in 1967. So 25 would have put him slap bang at this point in time. In 2003, he suffered kidney failure and needed dialysis for six years before a transplant was available. And in 2011, he was the subject of a documentary called I'm Back, which chronicled his recovery and comeback to the sport. That's right. After lipodystrophy, diabetes, pancreatitis and kidney failure, dialysis and a kidney replacement, he still competed. It's impressive, man. It's impressive. He had notable British championships, left and right, left and right overall, as was detailed in this. Sadly, he passed away May 23rd 2017 at the age of 50. Wow, that's no age, that. But the most beautiful thing, and I shared the video with you, is he had this documentary made called I'm Back, and at his memorial a memorial video was shown which included clips from that film including where he shows some of his trophies, and one of the ones he picks out to highlight and show, spoilers for the rest of the challenge, is his Games Master golden joystick.
2: Um, You know, and to i actually was on a tv program games master and at the time that was a oh i just turned them off Um, games master which is this one here now to win this golden joystick what you had to do is i had to beat an arm wrestling machine called arm champs 2 and now the, the brilliant thing about this is um that we didn't know at the time We had a go, and we all got too strong to record. And what that done is it kind of recognised that arm wrestlers are just so much stronger than the average person. You know, the average person got 35 kilos or 33 kilos of side pressure, and uh, the machine goes up to 75 kilos. And we all got too strong to record, and that's from lightweight, middleweight, and super heavyweight, Um, we all beat it. So they had to give us one of these each. So that's something that uh, I remember for a lot of years and years to come.
3: Honestly, as this challenge plays out, I didn't think any of these guys particularly cared for what they were doing here. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, almost 20 years later, of all the trophies he'd kept and all the trophies he hadn't, he still had this metal-plated plastic joystick in a Perspex case. And we've seen that a lot of the celebrities that have won golden joysticks
0: have either sold them on or given them away to other people, or actually you know, given them away to the kids that they beat on these challenges. So it's for him to keep hold of it and to pick it out for this documentary. I think it certainly does
3: say something about his character. Character. And also just what a fighter he was. Not in the sense of actual fighting other people, but just fighting everything that life threw at him. Now, I'll hold up my hands. Maybe there's some unpleasant stuff about him that I don't know. Obviously, there was nothing that came about in a first glance, but I'm hoping he was as nice as he appears and as much love was shown towards him after he passed away would seem to indicate. But to go back to the challenge... These three guys are hench God, these are huge dudes. And as we said, Rod is the world champion of his class weight, both left and right. And the guy next to him, Bad News Brown, he's a mountain of a man. He's, oh, isn't he? yes. he's huge.
4: Okay, well, just to give you at home an indication of how strong these guys will be, I'm going to pick a volunteer from the audience, get them down there and see how well they do, okay? So I'll pick one completely at random you in the long blonde tail, white t-shirt, would you like to come down? let have a round of applause for our volunteer. <laughs> all
2: right,
4: welcome. What's your name? Steve. All right then, Steve. Okay. What we're going to do is, um, you must remember, you've got to keep your elbow down at all times. We're going to measure you up against the computer and measure your total tonnage. Are you up for it? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay, if you'd like to assume your position, Steve. You get eight seconds, Steve. Just push as hard as you can for the eight seconds and it'll register your strongest tonnage. That's it, Steve. Keep going. Come on, Steve. That's it. All the way, Steve. Yes. Yes. Nice one, Steve. Okay, Steve got 26.2 kilograms. Round of applause for that
3: volunteer. And Dom does something I think quite smart at this point. He picks a victim from the audience to show how the average guy, or in this case, the average reject from Guns N' Roses road crew, will do on this game. Because this dude feels like he walked straight off the set of Airheads or any hair metal concert video that you've seen in this time period. I love this dude. He comes down, he's got his
0: big, long, blonde hair. He's got this white t-shirt on. He's got torn jeans. He looks
3: like a proper badass. Like, I'm more impressed by that guy than I was the armrest kids. He looks like the guy that kind of whites out in Wayne's world. You know, the one that they put in the back of the car and he's the last one to come to life for Bohemian Rhapsody. If you're going to spew, spew, spew into this. this. <laughs> well, he doesn't quite spew, but he doesn't impress all that much. He goes up to the arm wrestling machine. He takes a shot and he gets 26.2 kilograms, which is what a normal person can achieve. I'm not blowing my own horn, but I reckon I could do slightly better than 26.2 because this kid does not have any muscle definition whatsoever. <laughs> he He's, no. he's, he's a scrawny bugger. But it sets a bar.
4: OK, right now our three arm wrestlers are going to warm up under the watchful eye of referee David Sheen. And if you want to find out the outcome of this epic battle, join us after the break. Having the W.I. round for a soiree, Trisha Simpson's been acting like Egon Roney since she got a fondue set. So I'm putting my stall out. Popped into the British Gas Showroom last week. Very struck with their range of new gas cookers. A young man sidles up. No interest right now, he says. No interest, I said. I'm not surprised. But that's the economy for you. Turns out he meant no interest if I had it on credit. So here I am. Trisha Simpson's Butterbean Whip. I wouldn't use it for grouting the bathroom.
5: Don't you just love being in control?
0: <sighs> now, from Micromachines,
4: it's Superman City. You can get into town. Superman City. Just hold it on down. Micromachines taking over the place. With real racing dragsters. Ready to race. Working bridges in an airport too. A car was.
1: luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns
2: find a mint
0: like this in a pack of polos and you want a thousand pounds so whatever you do don't
1: mm, yummy
2: oh uh,
0: hello the mint Where the mint
4: Welcome back to Games Master, where we're at the start of the unofficial World Arm Wrestling Championships on the arcade game Arm Champs 2. We have got Rod Rambo Lynette, Robert Bad News Brown and Phil the Lunatic Duray here, challenging for the title. With me in the commentary box is CBG's Tim Boone. Welcome, Tim. Hi, Dominic. Now, Tim, there's not much we can tell these blogs about arm wrestling, but have you got any tips from the arcade game point of view? Sure. First thing to remember is that this machine has no respect whatsoever for size. doesn't care how big you are. All it cares about is technique, and they tell me that it's all in the wrist. Okay, then. And as we come back from
0: the ad break, Tim Boone is here for the unofficial arm wrestling championship to find out who is going to be crowned our champion. He says the machine's got no respect for size, but it's all in the wrist action. That's what they tell him.
3: Now, as all of our arm wrestlers have nicknames, bad news, Rambo the lunatic. I thought I'd make sure that Dom and Tim didn't feel left out. So I've got Dominic tough as diamonds and Mm -hmm. Tim Mills and (laughs) Boone. But first up is Tony the lunatic. And Dom says the crowd are going wild, which they may have been at the time when he said that, but they certainly weren't when he played back. However, he goes up, he grasps a hand, and the game buckles. He he pulls a very gurney face as
0: he really wrenches this thing down, throws down this arm that you've got to do so, and the machine counts up, counts up, counts up, gets to the, sort of the 70-odd mark, and then just says, too strong to measure. And he celebrates his hand in the air. Clearly, though, he wasn't the first person to do that because he's only placed second
3: on the table behind a different infinity symbol. I'm wondering if they did a first run of this at a lower difficulty had all the infinity symbols come up and went, okay, can we turn the difficulty up? So they turned it up as far as it would go and then they went again (laughs) and here we go. The smallest guy, up first, infinity symbol. Next up, we got Bad News Brown. Guess what, Luke? Yep, he's too strong to measure as well. It's extraordinary as Tim puts it. And last up, is my man my boy because i just love this guy now it's rod rambo lynette and would you adam and eve it it's an infinity symbol again we've got an infinity war going on here luke
0: (laughs) yeah i mean i wrote here because obviously i knew that rod was going to to win this challenge because you'd sent me that video clip but also i was thinking like i mean you don't want to bald this up now do you you don't want to be the only one of the three who doesn't get to win (laughs)
4: Now this is rather strange to us. It's the first time we have ever had three people completely trounce. I mean, it's just a brilliant example of brawn over technology. Did any of you find it difficult in the slightest? Too easy. Powered for, Power for it. Too easy. Okay. Now listen, just imagine that the scale had been larger. Who would have won then, on the strength of today?
5: Well, lightest like guy, as I said, I've proved it.
4: I've done these guys, it's as simple as that. And Rob, the final word from you super heavyweight would have won it. That's me. <laughs> All right, well you don't need to disagree any longer because for the first time in Games Master's short but sweet history It's a three-way tie. So we need three golden Games Master
3: joysticks. Thankfully, he doesn't. And Dominic comes down and says, this is unheard of. We've got three people that have all beat the challenge and in no way in which we can actually discernibly say that there's an individual winner. So three golden joysticks and the diver comes up really struggling because carrying two of these is bad (laughs) credit
0: to the diver i was gonna say because lifting those three things when i was lifting but carrying those three things cumbersome size they are in a diver's outfit with restricted view very fair play to her she did really well for that
3: and while she is making her way gingerly towards the stage i love that all three of the arm wrestlers they do the proper arm lock and tense but they managed to do a three-way on that which i was really Hmm. impressed by that they all got in there and like bulging the muscles. And you said this challenge, these guys might not have been like for your taste and I don't know, they may not have been for mine. But I actually love this moment because it was a complete out of left field. We've seen these sorts of machines tested to their limits with uh, Sonic Blast Man. So I was expecting some high scores, particularly after what we saw the average dude bro in the street can do. These three obliterated this machine. This machine was not equipped for this challenge. And I actually think that made it better. I, I don't... I don't know why I wouldn't have found it entertaining if it had been one of these guys versus Katrina and the wavy hairs from the audience. As it was them all against each other and against the machine, I just thought it was funny. I thought it was great. Yeah. I mean, the basically the challenge is
0: uh, if that scene from Predator, when Carl Weathers and <laughs> yeah. Arnold run and there's just this close-up on flexing muscles as they shake hands, that basically it's that but spread out over a few minutes uh, and various different people getting involved, and like I'm, I'm not uh, personally. I'm not really impressed by that sort of thing. Is like, you know they've always said about Vince McMahon and the WWE. He's a body guy. He likes guys with big bulgy muscles. For me, it's never been my thing. That's not why I got into wrestling. I've never really been impressed by the dudes that have got the big strength things. But I will always say, absolutely credit to those who put a lot of effort and sort of dedicate their lives to it. I think. But overall, as a challenge, it is fun because the three of them just completely obliterate it. It's not fun because there's an actual challenge to it or a competitive nature to it. It's just three lads being too strong for a game, I guess.
3: And Dom says this is a perfect example of brawn over technology. He's not wrong. He's absolutely not wrong. So, Luke... Is there anything in the book about our trio of wrist-bending warriors? There is indeed. In Star Riggers 2, Dominic Diamond writes,
0: One of the strangest challenges we had was on an arm wrestling game, Arm Champs 2, which featured the bicep-bulging talent of Rod Rambo Lynette, Robert Bad News Brown, and Tony the Lunatic Jury, all champions in their respective weight divisions and living proof that to be a success in arm wrestling, it doesn't matter how strong you are, you need a violence nickname. All three were great blokes, as it happened, but presented us with massive problems. Tony the Lunatic went first and scored infinity, which means he was so strong it went off the scale fine. I thought, he's the winner. Unfortunately, Robert Bad News did the same, and so did Rod Rambo. There was nothing we could do but declare it an awesome triumph of man over machine and a three-way tie. It was not, as a few people have suggested, a fix. The golden joysticks are worth a fortune, and we don't like giving one away, let alone three. Games playing skills, immeasurable, apparently.
3: Personal niceness, three stars, despite all the trouble they caused. Oh, that was nice. To be honest, it would never occur to me that this was a fix. I I genuinely don't think the researchers thought that they could basically destroy this game. Yeah, totally. And I still stand by my idea that maybe they started at one difficulty and went, OK, let's push it up a bit. Clearly, they're a bit too good for this at its normal difficulty setting. And then, yeah, <laughs> didn't quite work out. Hello, Games Master. Welcome up
5: to the helipad. What is it that's troubling you? I can't get into the Wizard's House on Goblins Toe. How do I do it? First of all, you need to fill up the bottle with water from the fountain. Get Winkle to use this on the toad to make him jump off the stone. Now, get Fingers to pick up the stone and use it on the mechanism to knock the ladder on the roof so that Winkle can climb up onto the wizard's house and enter it through the chimney. Got that?
4: Yes, thanks.
5: Good.
0: Good. Then yeah, no, be gone with it. Our first kid can't get into the wizard house on Goblin 2. So, this is kind of one of those like Monkey Island 2 sort of point and click puzzle games. So, here in order, you fill up the bottle of water, get Winkle to use this to get the toad off a stone, use fingers to use the stone to knock a ladder off a roof, and now Winkle can get into the house via the chimney. Simple stuff, really, when you
3: know how. It absolutely is. And I've never played these games, but I kind of want to. There were four of them. Four Goblins games. Because it's not just Goblins. It's Goblins with at least three eyes. (laughs) And I liked how this game looked. And, mild spoilers, we will see this game again next week at a slightly later point in the game. And that hint is so long, we only get two entries in the consultation (laughs) zone. But... That one may actually be one of my favourite hints of the entire season two, because it is such a perfect example of a bat point and click adventure. But either way, I really enjoyed this one. I thought this was kind of fun. It's why I like point and click games. It reminds me very much of Monkey Island, of Discworld, of Simon the Sorcerer, that entire range. So this was fun. It was also nice to see a fresh game, because guess what? The next two games are ones we've seen before.
4: Hello, Games Master. In Ganon's Tower on Zelda 3, when I reach the third floor, there is a ledge with a crack in it which I cannot get to. How do I get to it?
5: You will need to stand right on the edge of the platform, facing up toward the two blocks. Then dash into them using your Pegasus shoes. You shall now bounce across the gap. Thanks a lot.
0: Absolutely, yeah. This uh, last can't reach a platform in Ganon's Castle in Zelda Three, which we got. You've got to dash into some blocks that are opposite the platform with the Pegasus Boots, and when you hit that, you kind of the the
3: propulsion bounces you back. You go across the chasm, and then you can get through the door. Basically, it relies on recoil. Yes. This is the sort of thing you are only going to achieve via trial and error via a cheat book or via a disembodied giant chrome-domed head telling you.
0: Yeah, either that, or if you have noticed that when you dash into a wall, you do bounce
3: back and just sort of think to yourself, like, oh, I wonder if I try that, it will get me there. Who's going to notice that, Luke? Lunatics. That's who's going <laughs> to notice that.
4: Hello, Games Master.
3: What's your question?
4: I'm the you Family on the Super Nintendo. I just can't get anywhere at all. Can you help me?
5: Oh, dear. What a pitiful plea. Oh, well, follow this advice. Play the game through once, and then die, as you've been doing rather a lot by the sound of it. Then, on the continuous green, walk off to the left to collect four extra lives. Use them wisely. Thank you. And
0: then finally, this tiny little child is stuck on the Adams family. She just can't get anywhere at all. A pitiful plea that it is. Uh, Basically, when you die and you get to the game over screen, rather than going to continue or quit, jump over continue, and then you can find the secret bonus room that's got some extra one-ups in there. So use those wisely. But that's enough tips and hints. Let's go
5: to our final challenge. What are we playing, Games Master? To round off the evening's proceedings, I've opted for an amusing little game called Team Dish Freddy's Big top of fun. (laughs) As the bald but muscular Horace, the high diver, tonight's last contestant will need to successfully perform four increasingly difficult dives. To keep on course during the dive, Horace needs to carry out various aerial poses. Failure to perform these poses results in Horace being blown off course. I hope that, um, like me, you have a head for heights. It's Fiendish Freddy's Big Top of Fun perform four
3: successful dives, and you've got to do the poses as you go down, otherwise Fiendish Freddy will shop and blow you out of position. This was a Mindscape game, originally came out in 1990. It came out for the PC, the Amiga, the 16-bit Atari ST. It was also then later back-converted for the Spectrum, the Commodore, and the Amstrad CPC-464, my homeboy, representing (laughs) still. And in fact, the Commodore 64 version was included on the bundled cartridge of the ill-fated Commodore 64 cartridge game system. There is actually a plot to the game, believe it or not, in which a corrupt businessman called I.M. Tightwad, whom the circus owes $10,000 to, arrives on the scene with the intent of demolishing the circus unless it can pay up. And in a fit of desperation, the Ringmaster organises a display of six events to raise money, money for the doomed circus those six events are diving which we see here juggling trapeze knife throwing tightrope and the human cannonball the businessman is not happy with this has no intention of letting them get away with this so he sends his lackey called fiendish freddy to try and sabotage the act. now the diving character called horace is a muscular bald-headed man and so who else are you going to get to play this than a muscular bald-headed man
4: for these aquatic pursuits we are very lucky indeed to have with us Olympic gold 100 metres breaststroke medalist and the most popular swimmer Britain has ever produced the one, the only, Duncan Goodyear! OK, thank you! Now, Duncan, I must ask you, are you enjoying your stay on the resort? Oh, it's great. Getting here was a bit of a problem. Listen, I'm really sorry about that. Thank you very much for agreeing to actually swim all the way out. It was very kind of you. Well, I know the budgets are tight at Channel 4, so I <laughs> I can are. do to oblige. Thank you very much. <laughs> now, you're playing a diving game in preparation for your journey back, I might add. Um, <laughs> how do you fancy your chances at it? I don't think any diver, self-respecting diver, will talk to me for the rest of my life. (laughs) Well, we've got no self-respect on this show anyway. It's
0: Duncan Goodyear. Yeah, it's a double celebrity challenge episode.
3: We've had a few of those. They clearly filmed more celebrity challenges than they thought they'd need, or at least scheduled more, expecting some of the celebs to no-show. Although the way that Dominic introduced this makes it sound like it's two different people, because he
0: introduced him as the 100 meters breaststroke gold medalist, and one of Britain's favourite swimmers it's Duncan Goodyear and I was like oh it's, it's, he is both of those things right I, I, I need to amend my notes here
3: but thankfully no it is one man and he's kind of at the tail end of his career here because he first rose to prominence in the mid 1970s he was a gold medalist he also achieved numerous medals at the Commonwealth and European Games he was also by this point in his life a bit of a light entertainment darling this was not his first time on mass entertainment television he'd also made at least two appearances on The Sooty Show in the (laughs) 1980s. He is, as is pointed out... Bold-headed, Not by choice. He had trauma onset alopecia after falling out of a tree. The act of falling out of a tree and the impact was so traumatic, it caused him to lose all his hair. Bloody hell. But he married an American graphic designer called Annie Patterson, and the only thing of particular note regarding that particular pairing is they met at East Croydon Station. Ah, hello. To be honest, I'm kind of impressed that meeting anyone for the first time at East Croydon Station resulted in anything other than apathy and disdain. Although the delays at that station are often long enough, you could get through an entire courtship while waiting for your train to London, Victoria to turn up. <laughs> you can tell that Duncan has got some TV experience, as you said, in Light
0: entertainment, because he plays off Dominic very, very well here. You know, Dominic sets him up to be like, you know, it was a tough time for you getting here. You swam all the way here uh, and you're going to have to swim all the
3: way back as well. And <laughs> Duncan replies, yeah, budgets are tight on Channel 4. So anything he can do to oblige. I love that because that was clearly him thinking on his feet a little bit and having a little bit of fun because Channel 4 at that point was the upstart broadcaster. It didn't have the big money sponsorship of ITV nor the national funding of BBC One and BBC Two. So it was nice to see someone play up to that and acknowledge that Channel 4 were the scrappy underdog or as I just put in the note, top Bants. <laughs> joining
4: me at poolside is renegade's favorite boy tom watson welcome tom good evening dominic now so duncan's got this quite complicated stuff here any guidance for him well the stunts he's got to perform
0: are shown in the top left hand corner of the screen he's got to make sure he puts in those stunts on the way down otherwise finish
4: freddy will appear on a jetpack to try and blow him off course right duncan has four dives into increasingly smaller targets if he misses the target, it's a Arrivederci Duncan. Tom
0: Watson from Renegade returns to Games Master is in the booth. He says that the stunts that you need to do will appear on screen and the targets that you've got to hit when doing this diving challenge get increasingly smaller. So to kind of run you through how the game works is you dive off And then you've got a couple of bits that you need to look at. In the bottom left-hand corner is kind of like a... uh, There's a cross that you are kind of guiding to try to get it over the target. On your right-hand side, it shows you how far you are falling. And in the top left-hand corner, shows what poses you need to be doing. And if you don't do the pose that it shows in the top left-hand corner, then Fiendish Freddy will show up with a leaf blower and blow you out of position, making it harder for you to work out the cross over the target. And as Tom Watson points out, those are going to get ever-decreasing
3: targets to hit. It's fair to say that looking at this screen and looking at this game, there is a lot to take in. Unfortunately, none of that seems to matter really to Duncan, who spends most of these dives waggling his joystick like a mad bastard And on that first dive, he finally manages to hit the first pose, which is the swan dive. Doesn't get to the ballet, but does at least manage to hit the target. Second dive goes off. His first trick is the yoga. He does manage that. Goes for the pike, but ends up doing the king tut. And despite that, still just manages to hit the target. Third dive is where it all goes a bit Pete Tong. It wants him to do the ballet. The one thing he struggles to do is the ballet, he finally hits it Needs to go to the nose pinch, but it's too late. He's too far off course, and he just leaves a crater in the ground and boom, three out of four dives, and the challenge is over. But it doesn't really feel like it was Fiendish Freddy
0: that screwed him over by missing the poses. It just feels like, like you watch him doing this dive and he instantly just goes off course and then spends the rest of the fall trying to course-correct himself. He moves over to the he moves the cross in the bottom left-hand corner over to the right, and then he goes too far to the right. So now he's got to work his way back to the left. So he effectively just just ignores all of the poses that he needs to do. And yet, as you say, unfortunately, doesn't quite get it in time and just falls
3: through the floor. Freddie didn't screw Duncan. Duncan <laughs> screwed Duncan. Oh,
4: okay, God, they must have. They must have been cheated somehow. Listen, um, Duncan, it, it, was, it was quite tough for you out there, wasn't it? The first couple of dives were nice and you were getting some impressive-looking moves. Uh, talk me through some of it. Where, where did it go wrong? The, the yoga position was nice and laid back. Uh, <laughs> I, I did have trouble on the cross stick there. I, no. think, I think we all do, <laughs> Duncan, in, in our own little ways. Um, well, unfortunately, Duncan, we can't give you a golden joystick. But instead, as a little bit of a consolation, Auntie Marisha's got a bit of a surprise for you. So let's oh, uh, right. have a big cheer for Auntie Marisha <laughs> here. There you go, Duncan. You can take, take whatever takes your fancy from that one. Take a nice big one. Out. All right, I don't blame you.
0: And he says he had trouble on the cross stick and uh, doesn't get a joystick, but does get a treat from Auntie
3: Marisha's tray of treats. So that's always nice. He goes for a nice big snail bun. That's a quality choice. I reckon that would have caught my eye because that's a sizable bun in his hand. And clearly there were some
0: kids in the crowd that were big fans of Duncan because they were cheering his name. They were chanting his name as he walked
3: up the steps. Those are the kids that saw him on Sooty five or six years previously. They remembered him, but he was all over the place. He was a popular pundit. He was a likeable guy. He was funny he had some great natural personality and arguably if you don't get a golden joystick walking away clasping one of auntie marisha's buns there are far worse ways to end your day
4: well sadly we've reached the end of another show it's goujon of cod on the menu tonight so we're off to whip up a white sauce for that and we'll see you next week Good night. Well, speaking
0: of a bad way to end of the day, it's Goujon of Cod on the menu tonight. So Dominic's going to have to whip up a nice white sauce for it. Spunk joke, yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah, absolutely.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's breadcrumbs on the Goujon at least, so we can, like, pick the breadcrumbs off and, I don't know starve again
0: (laughs) i mean i'll be honest like i'm i don't mind that too much because my wife is gluten intolerant so if we do get breaded things she just sort of takes the thing that's inside the bread and eats that which means i just get the bready goodness and i do like that that's
3: nice that's 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 all the benefits of breaded proteins without the protein. (laughs) (laughs)
0: All the delicious carbs. But that is going to do it for episode 25 of series two,
3: the penultimate episode of series
0: two. Ash, what did you make of
3: it? I thought this was a fun episode. I don't think any of the challenges were spectacular. But the first one, Actraiser, we're seeing a classic game that helped define the early era of the Super Nintendo and the Super Famicom. The review zone, we saw three kind of fun racing games. We had the return of Radion Automatic and we had the result of the Easy Amos game design competition, which was great because that could have gone nowhere. And there was such an amazing range of games and design types and that was Brilliant to see. We then had a first celebrity challenge, which, despite the misgivings that you may have had and I may have had, turned out to be a lot of fun and was bolstered by finding out that Lynette, despite no longer being with us, clearly had held on to that golden joystick throughout most of his life. That immediately endears him to me. I don't know about the other two, maybe they still had them, maybe they didn't, but he did and he kept it and he kept it in good nick. It was clean, there was no dust on that case. Although, one thing I did notice is you could tell that that was one of the originals because it still had the a sticker on the side that said retailer award so he got one of the original batches but overall i enjoyed that first celebrity challenge then we had the consultation zone which which we had the standard zelda we had the adams family yada 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 but we had goblins too with a nice in-depth solution we had a final bonus celebrity challenge with an absolute legend of broadcasting and a guy that really played up into the role that he was put in. We had some quality banter throughout. This was a great episode. This was a solid penultimate episode. Nothing spectacular, but nothing inherently wrong. And for that level of consistency, I'm just going to go with a flat 90.
0: I think you enjoyed this one way more than I did. Like, I, I think you're right that it is a solid episode and it's enjoyable enough, but there's nothing on it that was particularly standout for me. So I, uh, while I did enjoy it yeah, to a degree, the act racer challenge was was fun enough uh, the arm wrestling challenge was cool because you know they completely demolished the machine uh and the, the final challenge was okay but it didn't feel like i don't know because because the fiendish freddy thing wasn't really throwing him off it was just him playing the game it was just sort of like i don't know just a bit of a damp squib to to kind of end on but he was very nice so i i think i i enjoyed this episode less than you did but i didn't hate the episode i thought it was just a perfectly serviceable episode so this might be our biggest discrepancy in this because i was going to go 79 percent for this episode
3: whoa ma'am! it's taken us almost two seasons but we've actually got a proper level of descent between our scores but you know what that's all right luke because you can't always be right (laughs) no
0: it's the games master sonic 2 review of games master podcast reviews
3: oh you want to talk about uh, controversial review scores, wait until we get to next week's review zone because boy, (laughs) howdy, there's a doozy in that one. But that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you all so much for
0: listening and downloading. Please do give this podcast a subscribe if you haven't already and leave us a review because it helps us get noticed in those podcast feeds. And if you want to get in touch with us, we are on Twitter at underconsolepod on Instagram at under.console and you can send your feedback for series two by emailing us feedback at underconsultation.com. Please do send in your mp threes for that as well we want to get a lot of voices across this we want to get a lot of voices on the wrap-up episode so
3: please do get in touch that's feedback at underconsultation.com and we want those extra voices for entirely selfless reasons because after 26 episodes we're f***ing tired We're as tired of hearing our voices as you are. Or if you want some real-time interaction, maybe to talk with us or some of our other listeners, or even leave some additional feedback, you can join us on our Discord, where there's conversations going on about the Crystal Maze, about Neuromancer, about various role-playing games, and about some of the other projects we work on, or rather worked on, before you were replaced by Mr. WrestleTalk. <laughs> Indeed. And if you want to support this podcast
0: monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash under console pod. If you back us at the £5 level, You get next week's episode one week early and ad free. But if you back us at any pound amount, you will get our bonus episode that we've released reviewing an episode of The Crystal Maze that's kind of actually from around this time period. It takes place like a couple of weeks after Series 2 of Games Master finishes. So it was a lot of fun. Go and check that out. We have been getting great feedback to that so far. And if you want to spurge a bit more and give us £10 a month, you can get a special bonus
3: merch pack. Ash, why don't you tell them what's inside? Inside that merch pack, you get a mug, you get stickers, you get badges, you get sweets you get a pack of pogs and you also get £5 off our first Under Consultation t-shirt which is in stock and shipping now if you want additional mugs, stickers, badges or just to buy a t-shirt outright all that can also be found on our website underconsultation.com and a shout out to those £10 backers Jamie,
0: Matt, Kyrick, Phil Simon, and Nick, Sean Adam, Cliff Adam, Rich, Gordon William and Misha you all rule just as every single person who listens to this show does and we will see you Next week in seven days' time for the final episode of series two. It's going to be emotional. Take care, everyone. See you in seven days. Good night.